The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. We're going to be reading through verse 13 this morning, which is also the end of the chapter. And I want to point out to you that um, Isaiah chapter 6, a few verses of it, is going to be quoted in our New Covenant passage today. But one of the things that could be of great value to you in your Bible study is as you're reading New Testament passages and they quote something from the Old Testament, is to simply go back there and read the broader context. And I think you'll see in this morning's sermon how helpful that can be. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, but he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull with their, and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth of it remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is the stump. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. We're going to be reading through verse 23 this morning. And just a heads up, because I don't know that I've ever done this before. I'm going to preach on the same passage twice, both this week and next week. That's why in the sermon it says part one uh, on the passage. 
And what we're going to do this week is we're going to focus on the center part of this passage. And then next week, Lord willing, we're going to come back and interpret the parable, that is to look at the first chunk and the third chunk together. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. The word of our God. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear. I'm sorry, with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here in Matthew chapter 13, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. This morning's parable, the first in a series of seven parables, is very easy to understand. Uh, It will take us some time to grapple with how to apply it to our lives, but understanding it is easy. Because Jesus tells the parable, then later on, Jesus carefully interprets the parable to his own disciples. And uh, as long as we follow my very favorite interpretive scheme of just keep reading, we're not going to read the first nine verses and say, I have no idea what this means. Because if we just keep reading, Jesus is going to tell us exactly 
what it means. Nevertheless, we do need to figure out why Jesus would intentionally make his teaching clear to one group of people while intentionally making it obscure, unclear, to another group of people. We also need to figure out why Jesus suddenly in his ministry is moving to teaching almost exclusively in parables to the crowds. And it turns out that those two things belong together. They're very closely related. Uh, This morning's passage comes to us in three distinct chunks. Uh, You can think of them as a type of sandwich. First, the first slice of bread, Jesus gives us the parable. In the third slice of bread, Jesus interprets the parable. And in between those two slices, the middle portion, Jesus tells us some very important truths that are related to why he is teaching the people in parables. That's what we're going to look at this morning, that middle passage. But Lord willing, we'll come back and look at the two slices next week. We're going to look at this morning's passage under four main headings. First, the gift that keeps on giving. Second, a just judgment. Third, the glory of the stump. And fourth, more than the prophets. Let me give those to you a second time to make sure that you have them. First, the gift that keeps on giving. Second, a just judgment. Third, the glory of the stump. And fourth, more than the prophets. Now, before we dive in, I I want you to come back with me to the Sea of Galilee so we can get this scene clearly in our own thinking as though we were there. Uh, Imagine you're with the crowds that are following Jesus around, listening to him teach, and this morning you, you go out to the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is standing there, and the crowds become so great that he gets in a boat and he pushes out a bit from shore so that we can all see him and hear him as he teaches And then our Lord opens his mouth and he begins to say, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, um, some of the seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because there was no depth to the earth. And when the sun rose, they were scorched, And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Uh, Other seeds fell on good soil, and they produced a harvest of a hundredfold, or sixty, or thirty. And then Jesus adds, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. one hand, Jesus would have held us in rapt attention, undoubtedly, as he told us this. It's a very earthy story. It's easy to follow and grasp the imagery, particularly in an agrarian society. And so we have this picture in our heads. But what does it mean? You know, there might have been a bit of murmur in the crowd as people were talking with each other, their neighbors, you know, do do you know what this means? I mean, Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. I have ears. I carefully listened to everything he said, and I still don't know what it means. And so the crowd, people are talking. Perhaps some people have the courage to offer answers, to speculate a bit. 
But truth be told, we do not want to know what our neighbors, Joseph and Simeon, think that Jesus is teaching. We want to know what Jesus is teaching. And thankfully, Andrew, one of the disciples, gets a hold of us and invites us to come with the disciples back to Jesus to hear what Jesus has to say. question on everyone's mind is obvious. Verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Uh, aren't you glad that they asked that question? Because I wanted to know the answer. Why parables, Jesus? And thankfully, Jesus tells us the answer. Before that, I should point out that one of the common answers is that these simple and earthy stories are easy to grasp. Right? They're very vivid. They're simple. They're easy to grasp. And Jesus is putting the cookies, as it were, on the bottom shelf to make sure that everybody can get them. That's a very common understanding of why Jesus taught in parables. And it's obviously wrong. Uh, for one thing, the disciples keep misunderstanding. Not just the crowds. The disciples do. In fact, in Luke's account of the parable of the sower, they not only ask Jesus why he teaches in parables, they ask him what this parable means. And so that can't be the answer. And in fact, Jesus tells us that that's the wrong answer as well. The simplicity and earthiness of the parables does help us to remember and apply them in our lives, but only after the triune God has made clear to us what they mean. Right? They're not initially easy to grasp unless you've already had someone explain them to you. So why does Jesus teach in parables? Thankfully, Jesus tells us. In giving his answer, the, our Lord teaches us four profound truths. First, he tells us about the gift that keeps on giving. Verses 11 and 12. And Jesus answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. To you it has been given. Knowledge of God and knowledge of the Lord's ways, knowledge of what the kingdom of God is all about, is not a personal achievement. It is a gift. It is an entirely unmerited gift that comes to us in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say this is a tremendously important truth to grasp, um, just to put it pointedly, particularly in our circles. Reformed Christians, that is, biblically Reformed Christians, confessionally Reformed Christians, we care a great deal about doctrine, probably more than anyone else of any other subsection of Christianity. And I hope you do. Doctrine is important. But, you know, one of the temptations that happens with people that care a lot about doctrine is uh, young men, not only young men, but I do particularly have young men in mind, young men can start thinking, you know how I can kind of lift myself up above my brothers and sisters in Christ is by demonstrating that I know more about theology than they do. Beloved, trust me, that happens a lot with young men when they get excited about Reformed Christianity. You know, we're, we're not so foolish to say, I'm holier than everyone else, but I have more theological answers than other people, and I can start looking down upon my brothers and sisters who get the answers wrong. Well, quite obviously, that's the sort of knowledge that puffs up, 
It's not the love that builds up. And it's something we need to warn ourselves against. Because we need to remind ourselves that knowledge is not a personal achievement. As the Apostle Paul said to the church in Corinth, for who sees anything different in you? The word different means better. Right? Why does anyone look at something different in you and go, oh, that's impressive. Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not first receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, growing in a knowledge of God and his ways is, in fact, a deeply moral issue. Because it turns out that God gives this gift repeatedly to those who love him and who actually seek to do his commandments. Right? So one of those things they don't really talk enough about with seminary students is that theological knowledge is not something you can get just by learning, memorizing all the books. It, it comes to us as we take God's word and we try to follow him and put it into practice because it's a gift, not an achievement. God gives that to us. So why isn't the fact that we're at least pursuing God and seeking to put his word into practice, isn't that something we can pat ourselves on the back for? Well, the obvious answer is no. Growing in theological knowledge is not a self-help project for two reasons. First, your very desire to follow God and to trust him is his gift to you. You only do that because God sovereignly came to you in the Holy Spirit and caused you to be born again from above. He gave you a new and tender heart that now loves him. Your ongoing desire to do that also flows from God's ongoing work in your life. Furthermore, the very means of grace that you ought to be using to come to know God more fully, know his ways more fully, right? principally the word of God, the sacraments and prayer, uh, they're actually called means of grace for a reason. They are all God's gracious gift to us. Right? What do you have that you did not first receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't? Now here's the good news. The God of grace will continue to heap grace upon grace in your life so that you get more and more knowledge of him. So that as you move through the Christian life and you attend to the means of grace, you're going to come to know God better and better and better and his ways better and better and better and that's going to produce a fruit in your life. Right? It's going to make a real difference. Jesus puts it like this. To the one who has... More will be given, and he will have an abundance. And that last phrase can actually be translated, uh, this is a good translation, could also be translated, um, he will become abundant. And the reason why I add that in is that uh, as you read through the parable, particularly when you get to verse 23, you're going to see that part of the abundance that God gives to us is causing us to be fruitful. It's not just that you have a bucket and God keeps throwing things in the bucket. Well, that's true too. But what actually God is doing is he's transforming you as you come to know him better so that you bear much fruit. And that's an important part of the parable that we're looking at. For now, please fix this truth in your thinking. Knowing God is the gift that keeps on giving. There is, however, a flip side to this astonishing gift. Uh, Jesus is not willing to throw his pearls before swine. You know, he teaches us that. Don't throw your pearls before swine. Jesus isn't willing to do that either. Uh, there's an emphatic contrast between what the Lord does for you 
and what the Lord does for them in this verse. To you who trust in and follow Jesus, the Lord is the font of never-ending blessings. Beloved, it does not matter how big your cup is. God's going to fill that cup to overflowing. Right? To those who trust in the Lord, Almighty God is a font of never-ending and increasing blessings. On the other hand, for them, for those who are hard-hearted toward Jesus, even what knowledge they have will be taken away. Um, it is a dangerous thing to presume on God's gifts. It is a dangerous thing to experience something of Christianity, to have a bit of taste of it, but not commit yourself to following Jesus, as though you're always going to enjoy that forever, that, that you could always turn at a later time. And Jesus is explicitly telling us here that's not true. Even that will be taken away from those who refuse to commit to follow him and remain hardened in their hearts. We should not imagine that Jesus is always desperately trying to get people to grasp just a little bit more of the truth about his kingdom. I've discovered that's very common in American Protestant Christianity. People imagine that Jesus just desperately wants people to come to faith, and he's always trying to do everything he can. And Jesus right here is saying, that's not true. If you harden your heart against me, Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you a judicial judgment, and I'm going to take away even that knowledge that you already have. I call this section a just judgment, although it's, a, frankly, a terrifying thing to think about. Our Lord's quotation from Isaiah chapter 6 makes clear it shouldn't have been unexpected to the first century Jews. This is not a new idea that Jesus is introducing in the first century. This is part of God's pattern of dealing with people throughout the ages. Please look at verses 13 through 15 with me. Jesus says, This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So we notice immediately that the Lord is, by quoting this passage, is shooting down this romantic notion that Jesus is desperately trying to save everybody. Of course, if that's what Jesus is trying to do, everybody would get saved. That's not what Jesus is trying to do. Our Lord explicitly tells us that one of the reasons he taught in parables was to obscure the truth so that those who were hardened against him wouldn't get it. In fact, Jesus tells us that this is because he doesn't want them to understand with their heart, but they would turn and he would heal them. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to heal them. They've gone too far. Now, we should handle this mystery of judicial hardening of the sinner's heart with great care. Right? You've got to be really careful with this. Jesus is opening up something to us so that we can understand what's going on in his ministry. right? Because there's increasing opposition. We have to remind ourselves we cannot read other people's hearts. In fact, frankly, we don't even understand our own hearts, as St. Augustine pointed out. We're often a mystery even to ourselves. 
but we cannot look into other people's hearts and we cannot know what God is doing there. Furthermore, the Lord has made clear what our duty is. Our duty is to proclaim the gospel as clearly as possible to everyone we can, right? So we don't have to live according to those secret things that we don't know. We're to be faithful to what God has revealed to us. And so we never look at someone and go, well, yeah, they've hardened their heart. Everyone we see that is not yet a Christian, we see as potentially someone whom God is going to bring into the kingdom, and we tell them the good news. Beloved, that's actually a good rule beyond this particular issue. We do not need to speculate about the hidden things of God. We simply need to remain faithful to those things that he has revealed. And this is a very practical application for us. I once had a beloved New Testament professor. I mean, I think undoubtedly the most beloved professor in the school. And one day it was kind of this, you know, rhetorical peak in his class. And he said, um, instead of sermons on parables, more sermons should be parables. What do you think of that? What would you think if next week, instead of coming in here and trying to explain to you what the parable of the sower is, I came here with a parable of my own? A well-crafted parable, right? One that was enjoyable to listen to. Do you you think that would be appropriate? Well, my beloved professor said that would be great, but I think that's a terrible, a terrible idea. I want to suggest that no sermons should be parables. Do you understand why? Our goal in preaching is not to be clever, nor is it to obscure the truth from unbelievers, which Jesus is telling us is one of the reasons why he taught in parables at this point in his ministry. Our goal was to exalt Christ and to hold forth the promise of full and free salvation in him to everyone that we meet. Should we preach and teach in parables today? There's a pretty basic way to check whether or not we should do this, and that's to move from Jesus to the apostles and look at the apostolic church. We have a record of their preaching. Do you know there's not a single instance of any apostle ever preaching or teaching using a parable? Not even once. I think that actually answers our question. Jesus spoke in parables for a reason that he has not commissioned us to pursue. Now that said, we should not reduce our Lord's rich and diverse teaching in parables merely to this one purpose of keeping the crowds from understanding. It is true that parables by their very nature begin by obscuring the truth, but they can also be used by Jesus to initially obscure the truth, but then to reveal it to people in powerful ways, and he does that. As Jeffrey Gibbs points out, if Christ's purpose is solely to conceal things from the crowd, then why bother talking to them at all? That's a just common sense sort of thing to grasp. Now, part of the answer to that question is that the crowds are not monolithic. Uh, There are some, like the scribes and the Pharisees that we've encountered, that are really hard-hearted toward Jesus, whom he's already warned to write on the verge of committing the unpardonable sin. But there's also people in the crowds that Jesus is sowing the word in so that it's going to reach a, reap a rich harvest at some point in the future. Uh, we should also note that Jesus tells three parables to his disciples in private. And since he was already in private with them, right, that there's no reason for him to have to obscure the teaching from the crowds. 
By the way, that's the parables of the treasure, the pearl, and the dragnet. Jesus tells all three of those to his disciples in private. The parable is a flexible literary form that Jesus would use for diverse purposes. What we're dealing with this in, in this passage is, is a transition in how Jesus is teaching. Up until this point, Jesus has occasionally used a parable. It's been rare. The disciples are going, hey, you know what? You came out, and now you're teaching many things in parables. What's changing? And Jesus is saying, I want you to be aware of the increasing opposition to my teaching, and I want you to understand people can't do that with impunity. There's a consequence to hearing my word and stiff-arming me. Part of that consequence is I'm going to harden you. I'm going to take away some of the knowledge that you even already have. Now, there are a few things we want to say here that are fairly important. Jesus appeals to Isaiah to make clear that his just judgment of hardening the hearts and minds of his hearers was not at all unexpected. But please notice that God speaking to Isaiah in Isaiah 6 does not start with the people being in neutral. Right? It is not as though God looks down on a bunch of people that are just neutral human beings and he looks at some of them and says, I'm going to harden your hearts so that although you otherwise would want to pursue me, I'm not going to let you. That is a gross caricature of Reformed theology, which is simply grappling with the biblical text. Fallen human beings do not start neutral. They start with hardened hearts and rebellion against Almighty God. And you can see that from this quotation from Isaiah. Uh, just look at the first part of our Lord's quotation once again. The Lord through Isaiah says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And the key word in that phrase is for, because. Why is God doing this? He's saying, I'm doing it in response to the hardness that they are already showing to my ministry as I travel around Galilee and preach and teach. Right? That key word is for. The Lord announces the judgment of keeping the people from truly hearing and understanding, but he does this, as the passage says, because this People's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. As Rick Phillips puts it, the point is that Jesus spoke in parables because of the callous attitude of his audience. Now we say this uh, process play itself out in the most famous case of God's judicial hardening in all of history. You know what that is, right? It's when God hardens Pharaoh's heart. You go back to the Exodus, and we see numerous times in Exodus where we're told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and Almighty God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Both things are going on. Divine sovereignty and personal responsibility are intertwined there. But you've got to remember that Pharaoh does not start from neutral. Pharaoh starts as an idolater who hates the living God, who, who when Moses first comes to him, says, like, I don't know who this Yahweh is, right? I don't care about him. And he was hardened against God's people. And God hardens his heart in the same direction that it was already bent. There are two important things we learn from the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. First, 
Pharaoh's heart was hardened towards both the Lord and the people of God before the Lord does anything to harden Pharaoh's heart. The second thing that's useful to know from the Hebrew, the Hebrew word translated hardened here means strengthen. It doesn't mean hardened, but it means hardened by strengthening it in the bent that it was already going. Right? He's not keeping Pharaoh from doing something he otherwise wanted to do. Pharaoh hated God. God hardened him in that rebellion. Right? It's a totally just judgment. We now come to our third main heading, which is the glory of the stump. And some of you are probably puzzled. You looked at this passage, you read this passage this week, and you can't find a stump in there anywhere. What in the world is your pastor doing, who's committed to the word of God, talking about the glory of the stump? Well, the glory of the stump comes from my favorite hermeneutical principle, just keep reading. Uh, Jesus is quoted from the call of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, regarding God's intent to further harden the hearts of the people who had turned away from him. And my quotations normally are, they're short, but if you just keep reading, as we actually did in our Old Covenant reading this morning, you know it actually does get to a stump. And it's important. It's actually very helpful for you when you're reading the New Testament and you see them quote the Old Testament to support things to go back and look at the broader context. And often it's going to carry riches of understanding for you that God will use to bless you. When we do that, we witness Isaiah seeing the glory of the Lord and boldly responding to the Lord's call. Right? Uh, It does not start there with the hardening of the people's hearts as Isaiah is going out to give the message. It starts with the Lord appearing to Isaiah, probably in the temple. The angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And Isaiah becoming undone because he sees the living God. And God heals him. Takes away his guilt. And then the Lord says, who will go for me? Who will go for us, actually, is what it says. Who will I send? And Isaiah volunteers. He's experienced God's grace. Here I am, Lord, send me. That's when the Lord gives this warning. And then after the Lord gives this particular warning to him, that the people are going to respond to his preaching with unbelief, he tells them something else. Um, He tells them they're not going to listen at all. Well, at all is a little too strong, but the vast majority of the Israelites are not going to listen to him in that generation. Now, Isaiah could look forward and through history and realize that hundreds of millions of people are going to be blessed by the book that God will give them, but not in his own generation. Let me just say quite plainly, no matter how clearly we all grasp that the fruit of our ministry belongs to God and we are called simply to be faithful, it's an incredibly discouraging thing to know in advance that your work is not going to be fruitful in this life, at least in the way that we would define it. I I can't imagine somebody saying, I'm going to go to Uganda, and God has told me in advance, nobody is going to be saved through my ministry there. That's kind of the situation Isaiah is in. And, And so when Isaiah considers this judicial hardening, he asks the obvious question. How long, O Lord? And this is the divine response. Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places 
are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is the stump. Do you see it now? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is going to send their descendants, their seed, into the Babylonian captivity. Judah is going to be wiped out. Israel's already been wiped out in 722 BC. Judah's going to be wiped out. The temple's going to be, you know, no stone is left on another. The city's going to be burned. And they're going to go away into captivity. And after that judgment, there's only going to be a remnant that returns. And God is saying, you know what, with that remnant, I'm going to burn them over again. It's like a tree that's been chopped down and burned, and the only thing that's left is the stump. But beloved, it says the stump is holy. Do you know who the stump is? The stump is Jesus Christ. See, on the very night in which Jesus was going to be betrayed, the remnant of Israel is reduced to just one man. All his disciples abandoned him. He is the one faithful Israelite. He dies in our place. But when the one faithful Israelite rises again on the third day, he justifies a vast multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that no human being can count. As one scholar puts it, the tree must be cut down to its stump. Judgment must fall on God's unfaithful people before mercy can grow up instead. And hidden within the warning, there is the promise Jesus will himself go ahead of his people and take the brunt of that judgment upon himself. Beloved, Jesus Christ is that holy seed. Jesus Christ is that stump. He is the one faithful Israelite who dies for his people and rises again. And in him, more people are saved than the sand on the seashore. My dear brothers and sisters, look at this, Jesus, and behold your God. This leads to our fourth and final section, which I have titled More Than the Prophets, verses 16 and 17. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Now, Jesus structures his words so there's an emphasis on for you, right? For you, your eyes. The initial emphasis falls on your eyes and your ears. Jesus is saying this blessing is specifically and personally for you. My disciples, it is not intended for the whole world without distinction, and it is not even something my choicest servants in the Old Testament were able to fully enjoy. This is God's gracious gift to you. For your eyes, blessed are your eyes and blessed are your ears. Why? Because I have come, and I am revealing God in a fuller way than he has ever been revealed before. As the author of Hebrews would later put it, long ago, at many times and in many ways, 
God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Now, beloved, if that is true of the disciples as they walk with Jesus around the Sea of Galilee, how much more is it true of us? How much greater is our blessing who live on the other side of the cross in the empty tomb, who live on the other side of Pentecost with the vastly greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit not only dwells with you, but in you, to us who have a completed New Testament, God's entire word, and we have it readily available in our own language. God has blessed us beyond measure. Beloved, let us respond to these blessings by offering up ourselves as a sacrifice of praise and gratitude. How then shall we live? Well, with gratitude and praise by all means. But you may have noticed that I skipped fairly quickly over our Lord's own initial application of the parable. Um, There's a refrain in this parable that we hear in several places throughout the Gospels, often with parables, and eight times in the book of Revelation. He who has ears, let him hear. That's our Lord's own application when he first gives this parable. He who has ears, let him hear. This call combines divine sovereignty and human responsibility into a single phrase. You know, the ultimate reason why you're here this morning, hearing God speak to you through his word, is because of God's sovereign grace. It is his gift to you. The ultimate reason why you can actually have ears that hear, that that understand and can see Christ in his word, is because of God's sovereign grace. It is his gracious gift to you. He has caused you to be born again from above, and he has given you ears that are capable of hearing and understanding. Yet the fact that everything that you have that's good, including the knowledge of God as his gift, is not a reason for us to be passive. You will search the Bible from cover to cover and never discover anyone saying, let go and let God. Right? That is not a biblical idea. God's extraordinary grace in our lives is intended to motivate us so that with greater confidence and increasing joy, we pursue him. We pursue holiness in our own lives. We pursue knowing him better. We pursue making him known with greater confidence and greater joy. But beloved, as you already know, doing this begins with prayerfully and diligently applying yourself to listen to the word of God so that you will do it. And so what Jesus commands all of us I say to each and every one of you, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen.